Stratus Foods is the industry partner you can depend on when you're looking for the very best in fats and oils. Our team of expert researchers, developers, and innovators have helped countless businesses just like yours bring their most delicious menus to life. With products that are reliable, sustainable, and ready to meet any challenge, you can fry, bake, saute, and grill with confidence. Stratus Foods, we've got you covered. All right, guys, kind of a slow week. You know, December's pretty slow for everyone, but we have had some news um, and some interesting news. I think the Jack in the Box story is pretty interesting because they're not only opening new restaurants, but they're bracing for what is going to be a really catastrophic thing for businesses that have heavily California-based stores. Um, so the story is that Jack in the Box opened up two new, they're expanding outside of California. They're opening up in all these new markets over the next year. And the two new markets that they've opened in, Salt Lake City and Louisville, Kentucky, have outperformed the rest of the system by a decent amount. And so there's, they are happy about this because it seems that there's a demand for Jack in the Box outside of the West Coast. Um, and it's going to help offset the cost of what this minimum wage increase is going to do. So, I mean, what do you guys think about this sort of playbook for how restaurants can handle this new law? Uh, well, as I like to re- remind you, too, um, there is a world outside of New York and California. Um, and yes, and, I, you know, people like me occupy it. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I guess first important to point out, I mean, Jack in the Box does have a heavy presence in California. It is based in California. It is not just in California, right? It's It must be in at least half the states, right? I mean, uh, I'm sure there's a number floating out there we could track down. But it is not. It is primarily a West Coast chain and its biggest presence is California. Um, so this is a story of two things. You know, the first thing is the California wage law. Let's start there. Um, that is obviously a big deal and it will probably discourage further development in the state of California among a lot of chains. Um, now California already is pretty saturated. So, you know, while it is an attractive state because it's the biggest state and it is, um, you know, there's lots of opportunity there. Um, it is for, for, for chains, especially outside of California, this will probably be sort of a red flag if you're looking to develop there. And if you were already looking to develop there, you were already well aware that it's a very expensive state to operate in. Um, so, so all to say that, you know, California, while, you know, we can debate the merits of this wage law, whether it's good or bad, that's a separate thing. Um, but, you know, if you look at facts, yes, this will ultimately be, uh, make it more difficult to operate, especially a QSR restaurant uh, in the state of California because of labor costs. Um, so that's one thing. And, and, and the second part of it is where is growth opportunity? And there is a lot of growth opportunity all over the country for even the big chains. Um, as we say, there is white space. And um, I think this is an interesting example of a company that is in the top 25, I believe, of biggest restaurant chains in America, or maybe top 30. I'd have to review our top 500. Um, but, you know, one of the biggest chains in America still having white space out there. You know, some other chains cannot say that. McDonald's cannot really say that. Starbucks can't really say that. Jack in the Box actually can say that. And as somebody who grew up on the East Coast, I can tell you this is my Holly moment. I've never been to a Jack in the Box, believe it or not. It's amazing to me. But it's because, again, grew up East Coast. It just wasn't ever a part of my con- consideration set. Um, and so when when Jack in the Box looks out uh, across the country and it sees the Louisvilles of the world that still don't have one and, you know, they still can tap into, 
that's a big opportunity. And of course, Louisville being in Kentucky, Salt Lake City being in Utah, pro bit more pro business states, you could say, let's call it, um, you know, there's, it's going to be a little bit more of a favorable operating environment for them. But most importantly, there's a huge well of customers who have either never had Jack in the Box, or they've only had it when they're traveling, who are going to be eager to visit. And so the returns are favorable. Um, you know, there's the reporting um, that the new stores in those markets are outperforming their expectations. I think in some cases, well over $2 million uh, annualized per store. And, um, and that, you know, shows that there is a demand for these concepts all over the country. Um, and, th- and that even the big chains need to tap into that demand in these sort of call them secondary or tertiary markets. Yeah, this is also exciting for Jack in the Box because they took a long break from franchise development. Um, I think they went something like 10 years and then they relaunched a franchise development program in 2021 and now are starting to see the fruits of that. So it's promising for them, you could say, that they launched this program two years ago and now in the two new markets that they've entered so far, they're seeing great success. I think both of those markets are seeing each store is seeing more than $100,000 in weekly um, average sale volume. And so that's pretty great. Um, but like you said, Holly, a big part of this for Jack in the Box is that most of their stores are in California, which is about to see a huge minimum wage hike uh, in the new year. And so obviously a lot, I think a lot of QSRs in California are planning to raise menu prices. They haven't been shy about it. Like this is how we're approaching this. We need to make more money if we're going to pay people more. Um, And I'm sure that Jack in the Box is at least considering that if they haven't like put it in stone yet for their California stores. Uh, But I'm sure they're highly encouraged to see the way that they can thrive Um, I mean, like Sam said, they've been in other states for a long time, but it's always nice when you can enter a new market, especially with a product like, you know, Jack in the Box. It's like you're competing with the McDonald's of the world, Um, not to mention the cult favorites, the In-N-Outs, the Shake Shacks. And so it's nice to enter a new market and see that you can really establish yourself and it's not people going, oh, another place I can get a cheap burger. Um, Or taco. Or taco. Yes, of course. God forbid. God bless Jack you. In the box God bless you, Jack in the Box. <laughs> um, maybe that's it. Maybe maybe it's that intersection that's really drawing people in and making people say, I think I'm going to check out this Jack in the Box place and then keep coming back. Um, so I'm sure that's, you know, really encouraging. Uh, obviously, these stories would have been in the works long before Gavin Newsom signed that bill into law. Um but that's really encouraging for them. You know, our friends at GuestXM said that almost 90% of QSR employees are going to be positively, the employees will be positively impacted by this wage increase. Uh, but, but that means that brands like Jack in the Box are going to have to start paying almost 90% of their employees more money by the hour. Uh, so this is a different approach to that. And uh, I think Jack in the Box must be pretty happy with it. And we got to also talk about the um, the new store prototype that Jack in the Box is leveraging as it grows. I believe it's Crave prototype. Um, but I think that's an interesting component of this because, again, if you look at some of the bigger brands and especially those that have kind of saturation levels across the country and are looking at opportunity, um, these newer prototypes that they're rolling out that are, you know, tend to be much smaller footprints 
that tend to be much more focused on efficiencies, much more designed around digital ordering, off-premises service. This is what Jack in the Box has done with their newer prototype. Um, that is a lot easier to punch into you know, these new markets than these big boxes that they used to, to put in. So it's interesting because um, some of these companies, again, that have already kind of reached all 50 states or most of the, you know, maybe continental U.S., um, the, the new wave of growth is going to be these smaller footprint stores that maybe they can put in the neighborhoods they couldn't get to before because they could never find a big enough plot for it. Or it's going to be encouraging for, a, you know, a jack-in-the-box that still has markets where they don't have a presence um, and, and they get to open these restaurants that are much more efficient and, and typically a lot more profitable because your capex is much lower and mm-hmm. um, and just in general you know you're you're, you're cranking up sales uh, like in some of these stores just because of the the efficiencies of what they're doing um, you know this is all very positive because um, it's sort of a win-win you have a new market you can crack into and you can do it with a store that's going to be more profitable you know it'll be interesting to review five ten years down the road to see, um, how these stores perf- are performing because they could end up being even long term much more, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're better performing stores, I think, for their entire system. For Do you sure. think that this is something that other brands are going to imitate, seeing how Jack in the Box is expanding into white space and maybe going places that it wasn't planning on going before? Yeah, I, I hope everybody's looking at the. Um, it depends depends on the concept, right? For for some of these growing emerging concepts that may be more regional, um, you know, of course, different. It's a different business, you know. There, you, you, I would still always recommend your concentric circle approach. That you know, in in the many years I've covered this industry, when I talk to brands that are growing their business, you know, that tends to be the one that I think is it makes the most sense because you know you have to build. Um, you know, brand awareness, you have to build some loyalty among your customers. Um, and, and operating uh, your brand is, um, you know, a geographical challenge. If you are primarily used to having all of your restaurants within a three hour radius, you don't want to then plant one on the other side of the country, right? So, but for some of these brands that are bigger um, and maybe only in eight or nine or 10 states, um, you know, yes, you, you have to start looking around the country to the pockets of opportunity. The Sun Belt, of course, has pr- provided a lot of opportunity over the last decade or so, you know, from Southern California across to Texas into the Southeast. I mean, all of that continues to be um, very much a focus for brands. And I think you should continue to look at those. But I do think it, it's, again, important to rem- remind everyone um, who's in growth mode that this whole country possesses towns that are hungry for something new, right? Um, I had this conversation last night, actually, with a, with an operator I was doing happy hour with. And, you know, he was saying how um, the coffee segment is what we were talking about in particular and some of these drive through only brands, right? And, you know, he was um, making the point that, um, you know, there, there are communities all across the country that don't have any, uh, they don't have any coffee um, uh, to consider, you know, they, they, they might have a Starbucks, they might have a Duncan. Um, but the opportunity is just vast because even if you're in a town of 10,000, which might seem small, if you're the only coffee player in town, you could own it, right? Like you can, you can still be highly profitable and chances are, by the way, your, your costs are going to be much lower operating in a, in a, a community like that. So that's the reminder. And I, and, and I think, you know, for a Jack in the box, it's a Louisville, but for your concept, it might be a, you know, again, a 10, 20,000, um, population kind of community that may seemingly be in the middle of nowhere or, uh, or something like that, but, but people are hungry all over the country or thirsty and coffee sake. And they, you know, they, they will appreciate having a new business in town and you can be successful there. 
I wonder if they're going to imitate the same plan with Del Taco, which is another heavily California-based brand that they now own. So I'm curious to see how that's going to shake out. Um, I'd love to have a Del Taco and a Jack in the Box on the East Coast. There are I've never tried them. And when I was talking to Alicia, I literally said, are you going to get the tacos? Well, and it's it, that is a, a good question to ask. And yes, I think the answer must be Jack in the Box. I, I, my assumption, I can't speak for them, but my assumption is as they enter new markets and discover the potential, it would only make sense to them bring in Del Taco if Del Taco is not already there. And these are funny brands, right? Because Jack in the Box and Del Taco both have locations on the East Coast. They, they you know, they've been in some of these um, states for many years in some cases, but it's not a, they just don't have that saturation. They don't. Um, and, and so a, a lot of it, again, is sort of the brand awareness where I think culturally in the zeitgeist, Del Taco and Jack in the Box are pretty entrenched. I think people on the East Coast who've never even had them before, you know, even if I was not in this industry, I probably would know what these brands are purely from a cultural standpoint. Um, they just don't have that same kind of saturation that a lot of the other chains have. And so that's an opportunity for them. They can tap into that sort of cultural affinity that they've um, they've, they've gained over many years. Um, and people can finally say, Oh, I need to check out what this is all about. So yes, I, I would suggest Jack in the box is probably going to blaze a trail that Del Taco then can follow as well. Also, Hey, co-branding is making a comeback. Good point. Stick a Del Taco sign on your Jack in the box. You're already serving tacos. Yeah. goes together very well. And I, I'm sure it's not a stretch to have those two operating out of the, you know, the same space. So, um, we will see. Well, now to talk about another taco brand, Taco Bell, um, which has to do with this Reddit story that Alicia wrote. Um, So basically, brands need to pay attention to Reddit was kind of the base of the story. Um, So on Reddit, which has over 57 million daily active users, which is a lot, um, there are a lot of conversations about fast food. And the number one brand that people are talking about is Taco Bell, has most of the market share there. But people aren't saying positive things about it. They're saying there are issues with the app. They're saying. And so Alicia Kelso's point with this story was that, like, you need to be paying attention to all forms of social media. You need to be checking on them and you need to be answering your consumers through something called social listening, which we've seen in various forms. Um, Chipotle is really good at social listening, paying attention to a social media app and making changes based on it. Um, so, I mean, what do you guys think about this concept of social listening and how do you think Reddit kind of plays a role in the way that restaurants can view their customers? It's so important because something funny that happens on social media, not haha funny, but something interesting that happens on social media is that if one person has a bad experience, if they have enough followers or if their Reddit post gets enough traction, it can just become a thing, even though it was one person's experience. And so like, for example, I don't think I've ever been to a McDonald's and not been able to get an ice cream when I wanted one, a soft serve, but I still have it in my head that the soft serve machines are always broken because people are always complaining about it. And it's like, I've never personally had that experience, but every time I want one, which is more often than you two would think, I have the thought then of like, what if the machine's broken? And then I'm like, I've never seen the machine broken, but everyone on the internet says it always is. And so that's why it's important to stay on top of the conversations that are happening about your brand anywhere, because even if one person, and I feel like uh, the big brands in particular are good at this on apps like TikTok, where if somebody with 
10 million TikTok followers says a bad thing about Taco Bell, then Taco Bell is immediately out there making it right. Um, but it's so important on Reddit, which works differently. It's more of uh, like a message forum times a million. Um, so it's so important to just keep a pulse on what people are saying in general there and how much reaction it's getting, uh, because it's really a situation where like one person could have a bad experience and the whole thing could snowball out of control for your brand. Um, so I think that's really interesting. I was less surprised by the numbers of like, for example, that Taco Bell is the brand that people talk about the most on there. That makes sense to me. Um, but it's still interesting to look at these numbers and to read about the conversations that are happening there and to think about, like, how how do you approach that as a brand, a big brand? But also if you're a small brand and someone is on your small town's Reddit board or on um, the Nextdoor website, for example, complaining about your brand, like, what do you do? So it's something really important for um, everyone to be paying attention to and thinking about. Yeah, it goes back to that kind of zeitgeist thing I was talking about earlier with Jack in the Box. I mean, today more than ever... Because of social media, <clears throat> we, we have a familiarity and understanding of these brands and what they're all about because they, they exist on this other plane. It, uh, you know, um, And I think a lot of these brands will be the first to tell you. And, and, and Taco Bell and our brand icon report, which I hopefully everybody has read and watched by now, but you know, they'll be the first to tell you. We don't own our brand. Our brand belongs to the customers, right? And, and this is where that often manifests is on these channels where customers are discussing it. Um, uh, the brand and, and menu items and marketing and, and whatever it might be for better or worse. Um, you know, and in a lot of cases in this example, you know, you've really got to be listening to get ahead of those things that could be for the worse. Some of these bad things, because um, you have to make it right. And if you don't make it right, the narrative will run away from you and you will, you will lose that narrative. Um, and um, the, the best brands are the ones that are listening, that are paying attention are seeing those negative things that come up. And by the way, if you have thousands of locations, there will always be, I don't care how good you are, even Chick-fil-A gets negative things, negative reviews, you know, people have bad experiences. And um, if you're not, if you don't hear it, if you don't, uh, are not aware of it, um, then you have no opportunity to fix it. And, and again, the best brands are the ones who are aware, they fix it immediately because how many of us have had a bad experience we go to Yelp or somewhere and complain about it, and then um, and then it's made right. They the, it's fixed, and and you know what we feel? We feel kind of dumb. You know, if you if you were the one who had that negative reaction and posted it, you're like, oh, sorry, uh, I might delete this because you guys were so gracious in in fixing this for me, right? Um, not speaking for anybody here, I'm, you know, but you know, let's just say we all have those experiences. Um, I'm reminded though of, um, I, you know, toured the Chipotle, uh, set their secondary headquarters here in Columbus. I, I got an opportunity to tour it and, um, they gave me a peek into their social war room and, you know, it's a wall of screens with all of the social channels on them. And, you know, I don't know, there might've been 10, 20 somethings in the room and like their job is just to like monitor this stuff because it's a big deal and, and you have to get ahead of it. You have to know what's going on. Um, last thing I'll say too, is about the, the sort of Reddit aspect of this. Reddit is not always thought of when you think of social media and, and common social channels where you should be listening because it's a little more niche. Um, and I'm saying this as somebody who has never posted to Reddit, never had an account on Reddit um, and maybe only been on that website two or three times um, 
when I just probably stumbled in accidentally. Um, but one thing I know about Reddit and of people, friends of mine who are active Reddit users is it's, there's a sort of an obsessiveness uh, with Reddit or, or I think the people who are there tend to be a little bit more obsessive with um, the things they care about. And that's not, I don't say that as a negative. This is very much can be a positive, right? Like they care so much they're on Reddit, you know, um, Twitter, Facebook, these things tend to be more passive, right? Like in a, in a fleeting moment, you say something on Twitter, uh, sorry, X, and you know, you're not even thinking, right? Reddit, it's, I, I think it's, I think these people kind of care a little bit more. Um, I mean, this Reddit is where that whole GameStop stock thing happened, right? Like these people will obsess over a thing. And those are the people you have to maybe be a little bit more worried about because if they're going to obsess over it so much, you know, they can really raise up an army of people on Reddit to like to do something again in the case of GameStop, um, uh, which Google that if you don't know about that, um, because I'm not going to be the one to tell you all the details. Um, so anyway, point being is like, like, uh, you you need to familiarize yourself with all the social channels, not just the big ones. Know where your loyal customer is. Know where the people are passionate for better or worse. And become a part of that conversation because you can fix it if it's for the worse. And you can capitalize on it if it's for the better. Understand what your customer cares about. Use that in your R&D efforts. These brands are doing this. Like, I'm, you know, I'm not saying anything they don't know. But I do think if you're an emerging brand uh, or smaller chain or whatever, like, these are good reminders of, like, what you, you have to be on top of. Even if you're just one location, people are talking about your brand and you don't own it. You don't own that narrative, but you can be a part of it. Well, and there's also positive ways to pay attention to what's going on on the internet. Think about the Taco Bell Mexican pizza um, or Chipotle's Chipotle from the Travis Kelsey tweets. Like there's a way to be picking up on momentum that's happening and listening to your customers and making changes for the positive that not only get into the cultural zeitgeist, but are also good for your brand. Yeah. And again, Taco Bell is so great at this, which is listening to the social channels and then spinning that into marketing gold. Cause you're right. The Mexican pizza coming from Doja cat, um, you know, the, the trademark taco Tuesday trademark stuff with LeBron. I think, you know, some of that came out of social, um, uh, you know, one example that came up in my brand icon reporting that I thought was kind of, um, fun. And I, I didn't remember this happening, but when back when Doritos Locos tacos, um, rolled out and were a massive cultural thing. Um, I guess there was some, some, something that happened on social media in Alaska. This town was talking, there was some prank somebody played in a town in Alaska, uh, about, you know, uh, that they were going to open a Taco Bell in a very remote town. Um, and, and Taco Bell learned about this from social media and flew by helicopter, a, a food truck to serve um, Doritos Locos Tacos to this very remote town in Alaska. And it becomes this sort of marketing win. And here we are over a decade later talking about it. Um, so yes, Taco Bell is is a great example of how to turn these things into your favor. Um, and, uh, and I think everybody should uh, I guess another thing too, um, Chipotle and some of these menu hacks, right? Like these things come out of TikTok. Chipotle ended up embracing it. I think Starbucks has done some of that as well, right? Where some of these menu hacks that's, that once upon a time, these companies would have frowned upon or, you know, you're not allowed to have a secret menu or whatever. Um, you know, when they see people on TikTok embracing it and then they embrace it and can be a part of the fun, that ends up coming back to you for the positive because it, again, builds some of that brand affinity with customers. All right, well, guys, that was great. I feel like that was a pretty positive conversation Thanks, this week. Holly. 
There was good no job, everybody. Yeah, good job, us. <laughs> good job, us. Well, okay, I'm going to throw it over to Alicia Kelso, who interviewed Shyla Morris and Kay Young of Squeeze In. But I'm going to thank you guys for joining. Stratus Foods is the industry partner you can depend on when you're looking for the very best in fats and oils. Our team of expert researchers, developers, and innovators have helped countless businesses just like yours bring their most delicious menus to life. With products that are reliable, sustainable, and ready to meet any challenge, you can fry, bake, saute, and grill with confidence. Stratus Foods, we've got you covered. News, and I am coming to you from Create the Experience in Palm Springs, California, and I am here with Kay Young and Shyla Morris. Um, they are the co-owners and co-chairs of the board of a concept called Squeeze In. And in full transparency, I just learned about this concept yesterday. So I'm like, why don't you guys come on the podcast and tell me a little bit about it? Well, they told me a little bit about it last night, but I want you guys to hear out there uh, about the concept. So um, where are you based? How many units do you have? And then I want one of you to break down the family history of this brand because that was really cool. Uh, Alicia, well, we're so glad to be joining you and so glad that you could squeeze us in, even though uh, you just learned about us. Um, It's been a lot of fun to be here, and bravo to you and your team for an excellent event. And everybody sign up for 24. It's going to be amazing. This is an incredible event. Yes, we're from the Squeeze In. It's a breakfast and lunch restaurant famous for the best omelets on the planet. It's called Squeeze In because it's literally tiny. You have to squeeze in, at least the original location is, uh, to enjoy enjoy and dine with us and have your experience. Yes, the original location is 10 feet wide and 62 feet long, so it is a literal squeeze in into it. Uh, but we're proud now to have expanded out of Truckee, California and across three states. We're in California, Nevada, and Idaho. And it has been a wild ride, an entrepreneurial journey that has led us to now uh, have an 11 location chain here on the West Coast. So we're very proud of what we built, but it started all when I was 10 and Shai was 17. And our parents literally cashed in their savings in retirement, called in every family favor that they could, pushed in all our family chips into the middle, and bet it all on a failing breakfast restaurant. I bet none of the operators out there can relate at all to that story. No, no one else has acted totally rationally and completely put their lives for their restaurants. I mean, you have to have a little bit of that gene in you to get into this industry and have that hospitality. And, and because we were raised in it, you know, that, that was 20 years ago that that bet happened on that one failing, historic, cute little tourist town breakfast spot. Uh, and, and since then, we like to say it's been the drama of American entrepreneurship, which sounds fun and kind of exciting, but but the reality of the drama is that roller coaster of ups and downs and family business growth and lessons and challenges and big celebrations and wins along the way. So it has been quite the journey and we're proud to have stood, stood standing sure. for a couple of decades. When did you go from that tiny uh, original historic location to two? And then what was the trajectory after that? Now, we picked the opportune time to grow from one to, do, to, to two. Now you may remember the rich economic climate of 2008. And it was the perfect time to open up a high-end breakfast restaurant in the middle of one of the hardest hit communities in the nation, which was Reno. We, we looked at our guest base. We thought we were going to expand onto the uh, western side of our mountain there in Truckee, onto the Sacramento side. And when we started looking at our guest base and where they were coming from, it turned out most of our people were traveling up from this northern Nevada hotspot called Reno. And so we're like, let's actually travel 
traveled on the eastern side of the mountain for a second location, but we were hit pretty hard um, when the when the economic crisis came. Right. So mom and dad buy the one location. We work in it for four or five years. We're learning the ropes. We bring in some updated systems. We get uh, good at looking at our data and realize we need to expand Arena. So we start that journey, of course, in 2007. But as 2008 materializes, funding dries up. Banks aren't loaning money. So we got to that point where our family had leveraged everything. Like sure. that Again. Again. <laughs> that, that night before, and you're unpacking the microwave, and you're unpacking the dishes, and you're like, we have to make money tomorrow to buy this. Oh, no, this no. Like, legitimately, yeah. on the very first day, we didn't have a microwave. We didn't realize. And we had to make the money that day and then take the money out of the cash register and go buy the microwave and bring it back for day number two. So every family business has those stories. Yeah. It's, it's been you know a, a lot of challenges along the way, but we were able to just focus on what works about our concept, build a really loyal, raving fan and following, and be able to serve a, a, a niche in our market that wasn't being served yet. Okay. And that is brunch? It, well, brunch is a vibe, you know I that. is a vibe. I'm, I'm curious to get out there and try some of your Bloody Marys, which is my weakness. Like my kryptonite. Um, it's practically a salad. It is, it is. So 2008, you um, take the risk and open the second location and, and go through what you went through with the microwave and all that other stuff. What about three to five? So we leverage everything again for three. <laughs> we leverage everything again for four. We actually get creative on some guest financing. We ask our guests, hey, do you guys want to help us fundraise to build another location? So they came in and started purchasing large gift card packages from us in order to help us fundraise for these next locations and get special perks along the way. So we got really creative to fund number three through five. And then we, we ran out of money and we ran out of family and we said, you know what, I think maybe it's time for us to take a look into the world of franchising. And so that was when we started to build out the franchise concept and the franchise company. And now the rest, there are five family owned locations and six of them are franchise locations. Outstanding. Okay. Is that, is that when you took the step to get outside of California or Reno? Yeah, we really started kind of growing in those, everybody recommends concentric circles. And so those first 10 years, it took us five years to just get stable with the one location, right? It had already been in operation for 30 years. So mom and dad buy the one location, we learn the ropes. And then in the next five years, we open that two, three, and four and get to kind of that maxing point and realize we're going to need to grow in a leadership sense. We really start investing in people growth and culture and then also grow in a way that was going to be scalable for our business, which is why we explored franchising. And now we've had the last 10 years where those next six locations have emerged as, as franchisees and getting to know that business and market has been a lot of fun. I was going to say that's a, it's quite a lesson to have a family-owned business and then jump into franchising. What are, the, what are your biggest takeaways in those first you know handful of years of franchising well we went from being the big fish regional restaurant chain in northern nevada to being a tiny tiny minnow in the ocean of franchising and so the first i think lesson for us was like holy cow this is a a lot bigger than we thought and be a lot harder than we thought. We've had to learn some difficult lessons along the way. You know, it hasn't all been perfect. Not every single location has been perfect, and we've had to really work at it to figure out what the system is going to look like. Um, and it's been a journey, but we're really proud of how far we've gone. Sure. What are some of the challenges that you've worked through? Yeah, well, you know, and we call it a drama of American entrepreneurship for a reason, right? <laughs> it's because 
there is drama and for so many operators you get lost in the sea of operations right it's this onslaught of people challenges and scheduling challenges and technology challenges and not be and and having to work in your business even though you know there's the important piece of working on your business and so i think once we were able to wrangle that challenge a little bit better for us we were able to to build a team build an environment and build a brand that could weather storms and really have positive impact on communities which is what it's all about sure okay um tell us about the concept the signature dishes i mean obviously it's it sounds like in this brief conversation so far that we've had today and then last night it sounds like you have a pretty you know staunch following especially if you're crowdsourcing your funding which is incredibly creative uh, we talked about we've talked about that here how you can look outside of other venues of funding and you guys did it so tell me what is getting this cult-like following, um, bringing people in your door and, and being your cheerleaders to help your growth. You know, even just you asking this question, I, I already have chills from head to toe. I'm smiling. I'm like, the reason for squeezing. <laughs> the reason for squeezing. It is just such a special place. You know, there's a reason our family fell in love with it all those years ago and that our parents, you know, when, when they would drive away from that original location, they wouldn't say, let's own a cafe someday or let's do something like squeeze in. They would say, if we ever get the chance to do anything, 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 it would be to own the squeeze-in restaurant. And it's because it's it's omelets, the food is delicious, the potatoes are ridiculous, the eggs Benedict is crazy, our one liter Bloody Mary with a grilled cheese on it is like so amazing. It's a Hail meal. Mary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Like we have this delicious food, but the environment is special. It is inclusive, it is loving, it's exciting, it's uplifting. It is, um, it's something that even I here 21 years later, having been in the trenches, I still get excited to go to my local squeeze in and just go eat there. It's, it is, it's a vibe and a half. Well, it's energizing, it's fun, the music is bumping, a surfboard is playing, is hanging from the ceiling, right? So is a beach cruiser bicycle. You can sign the wall with the sharpie that's and the walls are bright yellow to orange gradient so it's it, sunrise it's yeah. very textural right you can smell the french toast and the bacon and you can see the omelets coming up in the window and you can see all of the collection of tables and chairs are from garage sales and antique stores around town none of them are standard issues so that's part of that just familial community feel. sure okay um, we talked about the 2008 challenges mm -hmm. and the launch of franchising challenges how did you weather COVID? Because it, obviously it's a it's a dine-in place. It's experiential. Um, and that, those concepts got hit the hardest. Nobody, you know, everybody knows that. So explain to me how you were able to navigate that um, unprecedented challenge and what you've taken away from that. If you have any adjustments with, you know, with your operations or anything, your business model since then. The way that we weathered the storm was creatively. <laughs> I think everybody had to get creative in those times, and and you know it was funny. We were having a conversation on March, I think, eleventh, with our financial people, and they said to us, "Something's coming, and we need to be prepared." And there's runway, but there's not that much runway, and you guys can start now to do what you can. And it was on March 17th, just six days later, that we had an 85% drop in our revenue literally overnight. Now, that, of course, didn't mean an 85% drop in the invoices that we had for the last 60 days from U.S. Foods. That didn't mean an 85% drop in our rent payments. That meant it didn't mean any of that. And so in the face of this uncertainty, 
We are a people-centric brand. The last thing we're going to do is cut off all of our staff. So we stopped paying ourselves, we leaned into our people, and then we got really creative and called on our community um, to help us sustain throughout the pandemic. Right, we really took our level of communication and we increased it on an internal level. We started hosting team Zooms where we were just speaking hope and speaking encouragement. And then we got into our guest level and we started saying what can we do and what can you do and how can we stay partnered and connected and then we got into our social channels and we said we want to stay connected with you and ultimately what happened was we ended up hosting a five and a half hour <laughs> Facebook live-a-thon that was uh, raising money that would sponsor meals for hot meals for hospital workers in our area we were able to partner with six area hospitals and ultimately bring in uh, 4,000 meals over the course of that year kicking off with that live-a-thon uh, event that kept our family business alive. We made it through the payrolls of April and May and June when there wasn't PPP, when there's bills were due, when lenders were still, or I'm sorry, when our, uh, our owners were saying that your leases are due. And so all of those things saved us and through those creative efforts. But we really felt like we were like, uh, on the ship uh, bow, holding on to the mast for dear life as the captain is in the storm shaking his fist like, is that all you got? Like we were going to hold on for dear life and we're so glad we did. Oh, sure. And where are we now in terms of challenges because obviously COVID was certainly not, you know, on its own. Then we had, you know, labor, then we had supply chain, construction delays, all of it, all of it. Um, inflation. <laughs> Eggs were really high last year. Oh, they were. <laughs> so where are we now in terms of challenges? Do you feel like you're hanging on to that? ship still or the ship isn't sinking that's for sure <laughs> that's well, you know, i think at least for us in after the big liveathon and we feel like we come through and we have this creative solution to a challenge we come to 2021 in the summer and we had no idea that we were about to fall flat on our face again with this labor crisis and it i mean it was terrible we were finally able to open our doors it was like we're here we're ready we can go back to full capacity and our staff wasn't ready and so we ended up taking some pretty innovative measures um, we were able to go up to 100% capacity but we brought ourselves back to 50% capacity for the summer of 2021 we prioritized the mental health of our associates we began paying for their lunch breaks so they never felt like they were trying to negotiate their time off and the amount that they were getting paid and we really took a lot of measures to focus in on our, uh, our employee efforts and so now in our community there's still a lot of businesses struggling with this labor crisis but we feel like we're blessed and in this protective bubble because of the measures that we took in 21 to lean into what it meant for our employees. Um, talk to me about the macro environment because you guys are very specific niche. Um, high end, as you mentioned, brunch is discretionary. Um, what are you seeing now and what, what's, your, what's your level of optimism? <laughs> oh, we are so optimistic. You know, if you think about the dinner segment as it is, you have all these different categories. You have fine dining, you have casual, you have ethnic, ethnic differentiations. And think about breakfast. Like, it's fairly wide open and there isn't a lot of players. There are some good players, right? We've got First Lock, we've got Snooze. Obviously, we have IHOP, we have Denny's, we have some legacy players in, in, the, in the game. But there, it, it's pretty wide open for a few more to come on the field. And what we see in our heritage market is that there was room for this brunch without the pretension, right? It's not a small champagne flute. It's not a small Benedict with a little of potatoes, right? It's fun. It's hearty portions. The music's loud enough that when your three-year-old screams, it's okay, right? Like <laughs> it's, it's part of it. And right? we're, we're going to bring 
that three-year-old a basket of cool toys. It's not a, a wrapped crayon situation, right? So we've got this family environment where it says, mom and dad, relax, have a hearty mimosa, have a meal. We're going to help take care of your kids. We're going to celebrate your graduation. We're going to have fun on your anniversary. You're going to sign the wall with a Sharpie when it's important to you. You're going to bring in that picture that you wanted to give to the garage sale, but you just said, you know what, my local suite's in. I could hang that up, and it becomes part of that fabric of the community. Well, you, you answered a question, but I'm going to give you an opportunity that, to flush it out if you can. But I was going to ask, you know, the, the brunch space has become more saturated. Um, and certainly there's more consumer awareness about brunch. Thank you to First Watch. And, you know, um, and how will you maintain that differentiation as more players come in and provide consumers with more opportunities in that space. When I think brands like it, we see Snooze at least competing in the alcohol space, which is great, but we do see that many brands are still in the brunch spot, not including alcohol in their offering. Uh, we have double digit alcohol sales at Squeeze and it is a party seven days a week. It is seven day, uh, from six, 7.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. It is a party every single day, which is great. But the other differentiating factor that we really see is community involvement beyond simply donating to charities or being sponsors of, of events. We see community involvement really being about creating long-term relationships with our guests. Uh, we have uh, generational uh, visitors coming in. Our market segments are boomers, college-age kids with discretionary income, and young professionals with kids. So we have three generations currently dining inside our four walls, and they have been since 1974, because the original location turns 50 next year. Great, great, thank you for reminding me. I was born in 1974. I guess I turned 50 next year. Hey, hey, <laughs> congratulations. I might have to come to the original location Please and celebrate do. with it. Yeah. We'll have a joy party. <laughs> I do want that, Hail yeah. Mary, yeah. Um, all right, let's end on what's next. You guys have the playbook now for franchising. Uh, you have the playbook on creatively getting through various crises, all the crises. Um, you know, what, what can we expect next from this brand uh, as you, you know, continue to franchise and, and become smarter operators? Well, we're very proud that two years ago we brought in an industry professional CEO. So we've we've gotten to go from owners, comma operators to just owners and chairs of the board, which helps free us up to be strategy and think about questions like that, which is amazing. And to put someone in their strength zone, like Amir, who's joined our team and taken two previous brands uh, from 10 to 100 and done this journey with two other franchises, both California Pizza Kitchen and Z Pizza. And so now he's with us and he loves the Sunday brunch vibe and he loves the concept and it it's very scalable. The opportunity is here. And so having him in place, having us in place, you can expect to see Squeeze In really coming out of the franchising scene, being uh, being talked about, being uh, booked. We hope to see, you know, 100 units come pretty quickly. We, want, we have some ambitious plans and goals. And quite frankly, what we like to say is every community deserves a Squeeze In. It has a positive impact. It, it employs families. It adds to local vendors. It, it contributes to local co to, uh, causes and charities and organizations. So we hope to see that that concept get to spread and have more positive impact. I also want to say that we came here to create, put on Five Nations Restaurant News. Mm -hmm. Thank you guys so yeah. much. Thanks for being here. Yes, yeah, so we, we came here looking for next steps. We know what our goals are. We know that we're creating our team of Avengers. We've heard we have to clean, you know, clean up our house, and we've been doing those things. So, so we are asking, okay, so what's those? What are those next steps? And as we were asking these questions, our CEO and our business advisor said, 
go to an industry conference, there's one coming up, go to create, go find out those next steps. And we've really found that in, in this last 72 hours that we've had the opportunity to now say, okay, you know, we're action takers at heart. We are here to now take the action that we've set in place, but we wouldn't have the steps if it wasn't for this environment. So sure. thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, Best advice, come to the conference. Yeah, yeah, and, and we've heard that, you know, go to network, learn from people, because the cool thing about this industry is everybody really is willing to help, and it's a non-ego industry, I think. I don't know. I don't, um, and on a note then, we, we, we can expect more. What are you guys most excited about? Oh gosh, excited to see more people get to enjoy our freaking incredible concept. Now, it's, she's been in her life since I was 10, she was 17. So we call her our third <laughs> she's our sister. sister. Yeah, she's absolutely a, our third sister. Is she all grown up? Yeah. She is. <laughs> so it's exciting to see our sister live to her full potential, right? Think, right, exactly. And to like communities around the world, that's what we want yeah. to see. Great. Well, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. I love learning about the concept. I, I definitely want to come check it out and, and you know, enjoy the rest of, of the event. Thank you. We look forward to having you.